live from beyond the Beltway, this is Bruce Dumont with our weekly analysis of national politics with occasional injections of rumor and innuendo, all offered up by our panel of political insiders, pundits, power brokers, public servants, professors, and most importantly, plain-speaking Americans from coast to coast. Tonight, featuring commentary from liberal Georgia Logothites from the Daily Cost, conservative attorney Judith Sherwin, and in our second hour, Major General Jeffrey Slosher, author of the new book, Marathon War, Leadership in Combat in Afghanistan. Our program tonight coming to you from our new home base at the studios of WIND AM 560 in beautiful Elk Grove Village, Illinois. Phone lines open at 1-800-723-8289. That's 1-800-723-8289. And Lord willing, not only are you hearing us on America's great radio stations at this very moment, but you're also being able to watch us on YouTube and also on Facebook Live, on the Beyond the Beltway Facebook Live page, because we are back to both radio and television. And again, it's uh, taken a few weeks to get it all back together again, but we have got a great new uh, affiliate and uh, and uh, a flagship station, WIND, and they've been working behind the scenes to bring you tonight's broadcast. So it's nice to have you with us. We have lots to talk about. Judith Sherwin is here. Georgia Logothites is here. And other other than on agreeing that it's a beautiful day in Chicago, they probably won't agree too much this evening. So, uh, ladies, welcome to Beyond the Beltway. Nice to have you with us. Nice to be here, Bruce. I'd like to begin by asking you how important, I'm going to start with you, Georgia, how important is it that we get the absolute truth about what happened on January 6th, and how can we get the truth when both sides appear to be uh, stacking the deck on the investigative team that's looking into it. Your reaction? It is absolutely critical that we investigate the attack on our nation's capital and the broader attack on our democracy, right? This was an insurrection. This was a group of people that traveled from all across the country, many of them armed, many of them ready for physical battle, that broke into and came very close, very close, uh, to harming members of Congress, and they broke into offices. And if you read the indictments, we're learning so much more now about those images that we first saw across our screens on January 6th and in the days after. And, okay. you know, I, I would not accept the premise that both sides are um, stacking the commission. I think what we've seen is that there was a commission established, an independent commission, um, that Nancy Pelosi has been trying to get for a while. Republicans rejected it in terms of legislation. Okay. And so she had to go outside of that process. But I think that the members of the commission have absolutely been um, above board and okay. calling for Let's, a complete investigation wherever it may lead. I want to go to Judith Sherwin and get her reaction uh, to the core question and then the, the added question about the quality of the uh, investigation. But uh, do you agree with Georgia that we really should get to the bottom of what really happened on January 6th? Well, I absolutely agree that we need to get to the bottom of what happened. My idea of the bottom of what happened is quite different from George's. Um, this was not an insurrection. Uh, insurrections don't take place with bear spray. They take place with machine guns. They take place with other kinds of guns. These people were not armed. There's nothing in any of the indictments to indicate that they were most of these people have been indicted for things like trespass and being in the Capitol when they weren't supposed to be there. The fact that they are there all this time being held without bail is absolutely astonishing. 
I quite frankly do not understand why someone hasn't filed a writ of habeas corpus. I don't know if people know what that is, but it's a very um, old remedy that you bring against the, the king or the government mm -hmm. when the government is holding you in what is specious kind of circumstances. Mm -hmm. These people are being held without bail for for trespass. Georgia, I want to get back to you on that, but also uh, is it important yeah. as part of this investigation to thoroughly look into whether or not the Capitol Police and the police that and the 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 entity that that controls them, which is the speaker's office, whether or not they had acted properly on advance notification of what might going might might be happening on January 6th. Sure, and I just wanted to clarify a couple of facts for your listeners. Um, I know that uh, our other panelist is an attorney. I'm a former attorney as well. The insurrection statute, first and foremost, um, doesn't require necessarily that you have a specific type of weapon. But I do encourage her to look at the federal indictments, which I've gone through. There are entire accounts on Twitter and Facebook dedicated to posting them straight from the court. And multiple individuals face federal charges for coming armed. It wasn't just bear spray. We're talking about full weapons ready to take on. And, and those federal charges, happy for anyone to Google those, those federal charges for bringing weapons to the Capitol with the intent okay. to cause harm certainly do exist. But going to back what you, uh, what you mentioned, I think it's important that Speaker Pelosi and the members of the commission so far that have released statements have stated that this is a comprehensive, broad investigation. It's going to look at every aspect of this attack from why wasn't the why was the Capitol Police not properly prepared for this type of violence, even though all of us on social media knew that it was going to happen. Georgia, and more importantly, Georgia, Georgia, what was the connection to certain members of Congress who were also signaling on the House floor to but, those protesters but, and but, those interactions? But, but Georgia, let me ask you this. If, if, you want, if you want the public to believe that it's an objective, aggressive uh, investigation, why do you put on that committee Adam Schiff, who for two years or more before that was the number one anti-Trump member of Congress. Why do you add to that by adding Lynn, uh, Lynn Cheney, who is a Republican, but who has been outspoken in her hatred of Donald Trump? And those are just two. You could add, uh, uh, you know, uh, Raskin of New Jersey. You can add Zoe Lofren. These were all members of Adam the Kissinger. impeachment thing. But then why do you do that? Now, I understand the Republicans can come back and say, okay, well, we're going to put Jim Jordan and, and, and Representative Banks on it. But that, to me, indicates that neither side, they're all looking for advantage. Nobody's looking for absolute objective truth. And then by suggesting you're going to add so, Adam Kinzinger, I mean, he's another anti, he hates Donald Trump, period. Right. Bruce, if I could, if I could respond, I mean, if we're so, Bruce, I mean, for, if, if, if we're trying to find an anti, if we're trying to find a pro-Trump Trump Democrat, right, to provide balance on the commission, no, 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 that's no, obviously no, not no, going to happen. Not, so I think any Democrat for. that's on the commission um, would be looked as being anti-Trump, right? Well, well, no, but well, it's well, important well, to note well, that, for example, with Adam, go ahead. Just one second. I'm going to let Judith respond, and then I'm going to go back to you. Right. Judith. I mean, if we're looking for absolute truth, this is not a body that's going to give you absolute truth. This is going to give you a skewered answer, and based on, on Speaker Pelosi's picks for this committee, I could tell you right now what the answer to this committee is going to be. All right? So the, the, the facts, the actual facts of what happened, 
uh, it's going to take a long time to come out. It's not going to come out in a in a in a committee like this that is put together by the shirt by the you know the seat of her pants, with a bunch of people like Adam Schiff, who stood on the floor of the of the House of Representatives and said he had absolute proof of collusion between Donald Trump and the Russians. He had nothing. Okay. All he had was nonsense. All he had was silly rhetoric. He's going to do it again. And that's what she wants. She doesn't want the truth. She wants a campaign issue. But you know what? She's going to lose the house anyway. When we come back, I want to pick up, George, I want to give you a chance to finish your point. 1-800-723-8289. And my question to everyone is, if you really want the truth, why don't you start with objective investigators who have not made public statements for or against Donald Trump. Back shortly. One in three adults has pre-diabetes. One in three. That means it could be you, your football buddy, your football buddy, or you, your best man, your worst man, you, your dog walker, your cat jogger. While one in three adults has prediabetes, with early diagnosis, prediabetes can be reversed. Take the risk test at doihaveprediabetes.org. That's doihaveprediabetes.org. Wait, did they just say one in three adults has prediabetes? That's 33.33333% of adults. That means it could be me, my boss, or my boss's boss, or me, my favorite sister, or my other sister. That's seven members of my 21-person romantic book club. <gasps> Wait, the one in three could be me, my karaoke partner Carol, or ugh, my karaoke enemy Jeff. I'm going to take the risk test at doihaveprediabetes.org. Brought to you by the Ad Council and its pre-diabetes awareness partners. 145 over 92. 180 over 111. 182 over 100. And I had a heart attack and a cardiac arrest. And then a stroke. Your blood pressure numbers could change your life. A lot of people don't understand including myself, I didn't, now I do, uh, the impact of having a stroke. My memory is shot. When I woke up, I couldn't speak. Lowering your high blood pressure could save you from a heart attack or stroke. If you've stopped your treatment plan, restart it, or talk to your doctor about creating one that works better for you. Start taking the right steps at manageyourbp.org. It's a new life, but I'm going to make it better. Uh, coming back. Ask your doctor. Check your blood pressure. Brought to you by the American Heart Association, American Medical Association, and the Ad Council. It's a bully, but we aren't afraid of a fight. It's elusive, but our focus never fades. It's deadly, but we were born to defeat cancer. You may not have heard of us, but our work has helped millions impacted by cancer. We are the Leukemia and Lymphoma Society. We are leaders in advancing breakthroughs in immunotherapy, genomics, and personalized medicine. This research saves lives. After 65 years of fighting blood cancers, we've arrived at a game-changing belief. The cures for cancer are in our blood. The drugs and treatments we've developed for blood cancers have helped people affected by many different types of cancers. We are the Leukemia and Lymphoma Society. Beating cancer is in our blood. 
Learn more at LLS.org. Bruce Dumont back. Thanks very much for joining us. 1-800-723-8029. Uh, Judith had given her answer to the previous question, and uh, Georgia Logothites wanted to weigh in on uh, uh, the the makeup of the investigative committee that's been set up by the Speaker and uh, the suggestion that Adam Kinzinger uh, is going to be added to that committee and also one other member uh, mentioned by the Speaker uh, today on George Stephanopoulos' program. So uh, back to you, uh, Georgia. Uh, tell me why this is an objective committee. On both sides. Sure. Well, Adam Schiff obviously is the chairman of the House Intelligence Committee. So I think it would be odd to have such a major intelligence investigation without him. But going back to my point, if you tried to find a Democrat that hasn't issued a statement on Trump, you would be hard pressed to find one. Similarly, if you tried to find a Republican um, on the opposite side of the aisle. But I do want to remind your viewers and, and the audience that there was a bill proposed to establish an independent commission that was exactly modeled after the 9-11 commission. So it, it passed the House, 35 Republicans joined in the House, but it failed in the Senate. And that commission would have been evenly split, five and five. They would have had to approve subpoena powers. So Republicans had their bite at the apple to establish that type of commission. And for some reason, they chose not to. And so the question is, what did they expect to happen? For Nancy Pelosi to just drop the entire deal and, and move on and pretend that this historic, you know, horrific moment in history never happened? Of course not. So because Republicans rejected that 9-11 style commission, she was forced to be put in this position. Now going to Adam Kinzinger yeah, real she, quick, she, I'll conclude on over, this point. But she went overboard, it, I find it so funny. <laughs> I find it so funny that people um, now, uh, you know, you read Facebook and Twitter and they try and paint him as some wild-eyed liberal this is a guy who had a 90% Trump score. His district won, what, 17 plus points in favor of Donald Trump, okay? If, 90 if voting for Donald Trump's agenda 90% of the time does not qualify him as a proper Republican to sit on this commission, what is the threshold? Because Do we require 100% no, no, no. fealty Be, to the Trump agenda? No, wait a second, you, you don't have to do that, but, but Georgia, you, you have to admit as a member of the media when you pick a member of the committee to join it, and you have, and, and you pick, let's say you have two, you pick Lynn Cheney and you pick Adam Kinzinger, they are the two most outspoken anti-Trump Republicans in the House. That's where you, that's where, that's where you started with Lynn Cheney, and then you, then you add Adam Kinzinger. How do you think that anyone who really, who really is looking for the truth, I, I gotta tell you, I'm looking for the truth. But when I see who's on the list of investigators, I guess Adam Schiff is on this. I don't care whether he's the head of intelligence or not. I mean, good, good guy. And then you've got other members of the impeachment committee. I mean, you're, I, I think you could probably go in and pull names out of a hat of unknown members of Congress. And frankly, they would be more objective. And by the way, I would say the exact same thing about Jim Jordan. He's a pit bull. He's not going to go in there and find anything wrong that, that Trump does. I don't want that either. I would like to have an independent commission as someone as it was proposed. But you know what? Then I want to look, okay, who's independent? Because it's pretty hard to be an independent in these days in Washington. Now, I want to switch gears, if I can, 
uh, now that it, I think each side is sort of weighed in on that particular issue, and we're gonna we're gonna delve into another one, and and this is relatively new. It wasn't it wasn't what I was planning to talk about tonight, but again, uh, COVID nineteen and the Delta variants, and and the debate over whether masks are going back are going to be mandatory in certain states is back on the track again. So I'm going to start with you, Judith. First of all, uh, you you've been vaccinated, correct? Yes, yes, and I have. And Georgia, you've been vaccinated Both times. too. Georgia, have you been vaccinated? Yes, I have. Okay, good. And we as have I. So we've all been vaccinated. So my question to you is, and there has been uh, predictions that uh, the Delta variants may be moving forward in such a way that we may have upwards of 200,000 Americans killed again in the future that are traced back to the to the variants. Do you believe, Judith, start with you, do you think we're on a, on a road a march backward to a, to a horrible time for this country and a further uh, a division between those in this country who believe in masks and, and, and those that do not believe in masks and don't believe in vaccination. Where do you come? Just on that limited focus, well, if you will. Uh, well, it's, it's, it's a very loaded question and yeah. really not that limited. But, but the point, I, I think, first of all, the Delta variants, both, both uh, Pfizer and Moderna, have said that the vaccinations are effective against the Delta variant. They may not completely protect against the infection, but if the infection comes along, it's going to be mild. That's what they've said. I've read those papers, uh, and that's, that's their position. The, the issue of masking, okay, is, is a different issue, but it is somewhat related to the whole vaccination thing. If you spend an entire year, which really... Uh, opponents of vaccines for various reasons, some of them political, some of them just because they're people who oppose vaccines. If you spend an entire year saying, don't get this vaccine, I'm not going to take the Trump vaccine. Oh, my goodness. You know, he's rolling this out for the election. We're not going to take the Trump vaccine. Go back and look at the video of Joe Biden and Kamala Harris very clearly saying, don't take the vaccine, don't take the vaccine. That stuff gets in the air. People start okay. to think, you know, I better not take the vaccine. Stop for a second. Stop for a second. Georgia, I want to give your reaction to what's been said thus far. I do want to continue the conversation, but that's, you know, one side is presenting the case that Judith just made. What is your response to that side of the case? Sure. I mean, look, vaccine hesitancy um, cannot be placed at the feet of President Biden or Vice President Harris. Um, I think if you look at the chart, right, you see that the pockets that are the most unvaccinated in the country. We're, 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 we're losing your signal. So, so wide range of reasons for that. There's people across the country. Everything that there's a why people are hesitant to the, take the vaccines. But one thing that I will say is that we know that viruses mutate every year, right? Viruses mutate. And what we saw with these, you know, partial lockdowns, people flouting rules, um, the uneven landscape, allowed virus, I think, to you know, I'm Greek. I know the Greek alphabet, you know, alpha, beta, gamma, we're already on 
Georgia, I'm going to interrupt and just say that we, we have a very bad uh, line, a, a very bad connection uh, for Zoom. So what I'm going to ask to do, we're gonna, we have a commercial break coming up, but I want my producer, uh, Andrew, to to call you back try here to, i think try to yeah apologies about no 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 try to get either a try to get either a better zoom connection or perhaps a telephone connection i want your participation deferring to the expert but 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 right right now we're getting every third word that you say and uh, it's uh, it's causing great consternation to those around the country as well as in the studio that want to hear every word you have to say so again uh, we're going to pause here i'll try not let to i'll try not to, uh, to let to judith sherwin run run amuck while <laughs> while we're trying to get you back but andrew uh, do you have numbers do you know how to put her on hold and get everything you need to do and uh, we'll be back to you but again as everyone knows uh sometimes you get a good uh, zoom connection just like sometimes you get a good you know phone connection so we're going to try to correct that here we're going to continue however judith let, let me ask you the question sure um if 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 we were to wave a magic wand right now and have you direct the American people to react, what would your message be to those who have not had a vaccination? They've been, they've been hammered about it. Right. What new things could possibly be said to them that would make them get off their butt and get vaccinated? So I think, you know, Americans are a strange group. You tell them, go do something, and they say, oh, you can't tell me what to do. I mean, this is a very American response. I think the thing that you have to tell people is go talk to your doctor. Don't listen to President Biden. Don't listen to former President Trump. Don't listen to anybody. Go talk to your doctor. Do you have a condition that might be aggravated by the vaccine? There are some. Are you concerned about the fact that the FDA hasn't approved it, you know, for anything other than emergency use? Go talk to your doctor. I talked to my doctor before I got it. I, uh, someone who's very close to me, my son, before he took the mRNA vaccines, he investigated. He decided to take Johnson & Johnson and not to take that. But he talked to his doctor. That's who they should talk to. Don't talk to me. I'm a lawyer. Don't talk or to you. Or a talk show host. Or a talk, yes, don't talk to a talk show host. Go talk to your doctor. There are plenty of good doctors who know about this, who have been working with these. And, and you know, listen, some of the medical personnel haven't taken these vaccines. Uh, apparently a very large number of them. I'm not sure I know what that's all about. But people should talk to would their you, doctor and make an informed decision that way. Would you acknowledge that at the core of people who have not been vaccinated, are a large portion of people who do not trust government. And they may be African-American because they have the memory of the Tuskegee right. Institute investigation. So there's a lot of mistrust of government within the African-American communities, maybe less so in the brown community, but certainly within the black community. Mm -hmm. And then you have on top of that, you have card-carrying conservative Trump Republicans who despise Joe Biden, despise anything that government suggests, and they really despise, uh, you know, uh, you know, Dr. Uh, <laughs> well, Dr. Fauci. Dr. Fauci. Yeah. So all of those things lead up to the people that we need to have uh, vaccinated. I'm Bruce Dumont. Georgia will be back on the line when we return. And I hope you'll let me answer that when we come back.
This is the story of a very special woman. In a matter of seconds, she turned herself into a great mathematician or an entrepreneur. Her knowledge was limitless and still is. She could also make monsters disappear, especially those that lurked in the shadows under the bed. Once, this woman put back together a teenage girl's broken heart, which had been shattered in a thousand pieces, just by giving her a bear hug. She masqueraded as a regular person at work, but as a superhero at home. Everyone knows her as Gabriella. I still call her mom. Your hero needs you now, and AARP is here to help. Find the care guides you need to help, complete with tips and resources, at aarp.org caregiving. A public service announcement brought to you by AARP and the Ad Council. No word in the English language is less convincing than probably. Are you sure we should get matching tattoos on our first date? Sure. Um, we'll probably stay together. Probably? <laughs> it's been 23 minutes since I ate. I can probably swim. Uh, you should wait 30 minutes. Mm, okay, don't tell me what to do. Cannonball! Cramp! Oh, I have a cramp. I can probably hit the green from here. Probably. Can I get a mulligan? Ready to go? Hey, are you sure you're okay to drive? Yeah, I'm pretty sober. Yeah, I'm probably okay. Probably okay isn't okay, especially when it comes to drinking and driving. If you're drinking, call a cab, a car, or a friend. Buzz driving is drunk driving. A message brought to you by NHTSA and the Ad Council. One in three adults has pre-diabetes. One in three. That means it could be you, your football buddy, your football buddy, or you, your best man, your worst man, you, your dog walker, your cat jogger. While one in three adults has pre-diabetes, with early diagnosis, pre-diabetes can be reversed. Take the risk test at doihaveprediabetes.org. That's doihaveprediabetes.org. Wait, did they just say one in three adults has pre-diabetes? That's 33.33333% of adults. That means it could be me, my boss, or my boss's boss, or me, my favorite sister, or my other sister. That's seven members of my 21-person romantic book club. <gasps> Wait, the one in three could be me, my karaoke partner Carol, or ugh, my karaoke enemy Jeff. I'm going to take the risk test at doihaveprediabetes.org. Brought to you by the Ad Council and its pre-diabetes awareness partners. Bruce Dumont back. 1-800-723-8289 is the phone number. We do have callers on the line. We will bring them into our conversation in just a moment, but Georgia Logothides, she ran into a, a bad uh, line, a, a Zoom line. So, uh, Georgia, you're back with us with a good old-fashioned phone call. Are you there loud and clear? Yes, thank you. Apologies for the technical Terrific. difficulties. Not, Everything works until it doesn't, right? Not, not your problem. <laughs> but I, I, I did want to ask you, the, I asked a couple of questions to Judith while we were getting you back on the line. One was, uh, if if you were made the, 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 the Zarina of trying to correct this, um, what would you tell the American people now? If you had the power of the pulpit, what would you be saying to those that are not yet 
uh, vaccinated? I think the number one thing to get through is the fact that hundreds of millions of people have taken these vaccines across the world, and they've been shown to prevent death. And so if you want to protect yourself and your loved ones, you know, I'm the parent of three unvaccinated children under four and under. Mm -hmm. They can't get their vaccines yet. And so we got vaccinated, obviously, not just for ourselves, but to protect them as well. But I think the most important point is that those types of facts and statistics are most reliable and credible coming out of the mouth of, of community partners and doctors and not talking heads on TV and with mm-hmm. due respect, not to me on the radio and to all of no, us I on agree. the radio. Right? I agree. Um, so I think the community partnerships, especially in those underrepresented communities, um, the ones that aren't taking the vaccine, red, blue, brown, black, whatever, there's unvaccinated people across the board who have vaccine hesitancy for a wide range of reasons. And so if they look at just the sheer volume of people who have taken these vaccines, and there's this great chart that's floating out there that shows a correlation between, um, you know, how many people have received the vaccine, their two doses, and then the number of deaths plummeting. It, it right. saves lives. And I think right. that that's the message that they need to hear from you know, their, their pastor, their friends, their family, um, next, those are their most trusted people. Next question, I asked it to Judith, so I'm going to let her respond first uh, before the break, and then I want to come back to you. Uh, and, and that is, if you look at those who are unvaccinated, you have, at least in my opinion, you have a large number of African Americans who distrust government, goes going back to the Tuskegee syphilis investigations or exploratory things years you know, decades ago and then you have you have conservative republicans pro-trump republicans who don't like anything that dr fauci has to say they don't believe in the elections i mean they're they're just they're anti-government and and both of them are tied together so it it it, it could be in many cases the, the extremes within our community uh and 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 they represent maybe almost 50 percent of the population now what right. do you say to them georgia or what do what do Democratic leaders say to them, trying to convince them? I mean, Kamala Harris can't even convince them on this matter. You're not gonna... And I think that. Okay. Oh, go ahead. I'm oh, sorry. Go ahead. Yeah, uh, I'm Judith, sorry. And then then back to. Thanks, Georgia. Um, you know, you're not going to convince them by knocking on their door and telling them go get a vaccine. Right. That is absolutely the wrong right. the wrong thing to do. The important thing to do is for leaders in the African-American community, doctors in the African-American community who believe in the medicine and believe in the science, those people need to work with the community leaders in the African-American community. And I think they will be able to make a dent. I really do. I understand the mistrust going back years and years to the Tuskegee experiments. And I, I understand that. I really do. But, you know, we're not experimenting here. We, these, these vaccines are working, as George has said. Uh, there are some side effects. Uh, we all know about the side effects, but they are working. They are preventing death. They are preventing hospitalization. And that really is the point. The, the other thing uh, with respect to the conservative Republicans, okay, President Trump himself has said more and more, go get the vaccine. President Trump was at the forefront of working on developing the vaccine. And getting it. And getting it. So it's not that their their mistrust is not of of the vaccine. I think it's of the government process. Again, 
you knock on those people's doors and you tell them go get a vaccine, they're going to tell you get off my lawn. Okay, right. they're, they're not okay. going to put up. With I it. want to go to Georgia for response to the same question, Georgia. Yeah, I think each one of those communities requires a different targeted outreach, right? What's happening in the in the black and, and Hispanic communities, um, that has obviously a large history with it. It has a cultural component to it as well. Um, and I think if you look, there was a report that came out um, that found that there's really 12 online personalities that have been driving this misinformation and disinformation campaign, especially um, the ones that get into those types of communities. Things, ridiculous claims, right, such as the vaccine causes infertility or you're going to get a heart attack as soon as you take it. Easily, easily, um, uh, easy claims to disprove, but they have such an enormous reach. And so I think with respect to those communities, going and doing that type of education and saying what you're reading on social media is designed to inflame and frighten and it's not the truth and then have that trusted community partner come out and provide the truth I with agree. respect to the donald trump supporters that are refusing to get the vaccine i think it's, it's much more than just the distrust of the government i think what it is is they don't want to be seen as doing something that liberals do right i think it's it's i don't want to be seen doing what a democrat does it's, it's the masking became a political message right, right. it used right. to be Everything was, was fine, and then it became a symbol of whether you were a Democrat or a Republican, and it shouldn't be that way. Health issues should be apolitical. I was very pleased to see Tucker Carlson, uh, Steve Scalise, the second Republican in the House, come out and urge vaccination. Mm -hmm. I'm hoping that that entices some within the Republican base to get vaccinated if they can. Um, and hopefully we'll start to see those numbers um, in, in those in hot spots counties across the country begin okay. to change. We're going to go to a call. We're going 1-800-723-8029. John, listening to us in McHenry, Illinois. Go ahead. Okay. John, go yes. ahead. Hello? Yes. Yeah. Um, my question has to do going back to the January 6th committee. Um, yes. I called in back on June the 6th on this show and discussed, we just, we had an impeachment trial and that was when those who are pushing this now this committee, they could have called witnesses under oath, collected testimony and cross examined the witnesses. And here we are now in late July. It's down. It looks like Speaker Pelosi is doing a do over. And like I said back on June 6th here on the show is that there were tens of thousands of peaceful protesters who did nothing of the violence and didn't even try to enter the Capitol. And, you know, Adam Kinzinger in his statement today accepting the position of being on the committee, he said, this is quoting, I've said the American people deserve transparency and truth and how and why thousands showed up to attack democracy and ultimately led to the insurrection. So that first part sounds to me like he wants to go after, well, why are people even there peacefully protesting, as is their First Amendment right. And I remember bringing up on June the 6th the husband of Congresswoman Mary Miller, who had nothing to do with the violence. He spoke at a peaceful protest at the Capitol complex, and he was condemned as being part of the rioters and the violence. And even after he was cleared by the Illinois um, Legislative Inspector General, the Democrats in Illinois did not rescind their of him so i guess i don't want to say words like 
certain types of hunts here, but it sounds like there's a do-over going on. And I, I want to objectively hear from your guest, you know, it was pointed out very clearly back on June 6th. There were no okay. guns. Let's, 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 so let's, we'll let you, I'll let you all respond. Let's get a response. We're going to get a response from Judith, short version of a response. And then Georgia, again, short versions, if you will. Go ahead. Okay. Well, I, you know, I couldn't agree with your caller more. A very eloquent, uh, Okay, uh, let's go to Georgia. Let's go to Georgia. Said. Georgia response. Sure. I, I'm just going back to that talking point about no guns. Um, there have been federal rioting charges brought. There have been charges being brought under uh, various federal statutes related to arms that were firearms that were brought into the Capitol. I encourage you again to to look at those types of primary documents. And and going back to the commission, I think you know what the makeup is going to be. What the makeup is going to be, right. but it's critically important that everything is sourced into those primary documents so that the American people can interpret them the way they want to interpret them, as opposed to being filtered through, for example, you know, um, Congressman Schiff or Kinzinger or Cheney, so that you can read that original transcript, let's say, from the Capitol Police, or you can read the messages between the police and the military requesting help. Those primary documents... Do you suggest, would you, would, Georgia, would you acknowledge that this investigation is probably going to be dragged out as long as it possibly can so that it becomes a part of the 2020 primary campaign? I mean, we're not, we're not going to get I a just, quick answer to this. Yeah, I mean, my, my quick answer is I don't think so because it's going to be a, a, a part of the campaign regardless. So I don't think that they necessarily need to have the cameras on. And honestly, I think they would rather have it wrap up so they could get on the campaign trail. Um, but it's going to be an issue regardless, the insurrection. The, the congressmen that supported it will be defending it, and the ones that have been investigating it will have to answer for that as well. Judith Sherwin. Um, Judith Sherwin. I, I, I believe that they're going to try to drag this out as long as they can. Um, and, and I do agree this is a do-over. This is, well, we didn't get them on the impeachment, so we're going to blame them for a phantom insurrection. This was a phantom insurrection. I have read the documents. It is clear that these people uh, were clearly not to be in the Capitol. They were trespassing. They were involved in mm. mob action. There are laws regarding that. But the way they're being held and the way this investigation is being conducted is, uh, is, is shameful. Under our Constitution, absolutely shameful. And once again, I'd call for a writ of habeas corpus. We pause right now because we've got some commercial breaks coming up. Uh, Judith Sherwin and Georgia Logothides will continue with us. And in the next segment, we will move to another segment where they will be vehemently opposed to each other. Voting rights in America. I'm Bruce Dumont. Thanks for joining us tonight. We all have the ability to touch the lives of those around us. To someone going through a difficult time, a text, a call, or a visit can mean so much. Reach out to the veterans in your life today. Let them know they're not alone. One simple act can make all the difference. That's the power of one. If you're a veteran in crisis or no one who is, visit VeteransCrisisLine.net for free 24-7 confidential support. Let's be honest, the National Symphony may not be in his future, but he wanted to try violin. So you said yes because you love him. And if you love him that much, love him enough to make sure he's buckled up and in the back seat. Find out more about keeping your kids safe in your vehicle at NHTSA.gov slash the right seat. Show him you love him. 
keep them safe. Visit NHTSA.gov slash the right seat. Brought to you by the National Highway Traffic Safety Administration and the Ad Council. 145 over 92. 180 over 111. 182 over 100. And I had a heart attack and a cardiac arrest. And then a stroke. Your blood pressure numbers could change your life. A lot of people don't understand, including myself, I didn't, now I do, uh, the impact of having a stroke. My memory is shot. When I woke up, I couldn't speak. Lowering your high blood pressure could save you from a heart attack or stroke. If you've stopped your treatment plan, restart it, or talk to your doctor about creating one that works better for you. Start taking the right steps at manageyourbp.org. It's a new life, but I'm going to make it better. I'm coming back. Ask your doctor. Check your blood pressure. Brought to you by the American Heart Association, American Medical Association, and the Ad Council. It's a bully, but we aren't afraid of a fight. It's elusive, but our focus never fades. It's deadly, but we were born to defeat cancer. You may not have heard of us, but our work has helped millions impacted by cancer. We are the Leukemia and Lymphoma Society. We are leaders in advancing breakthroughs in immunotherapy, genomics, and personalized medicine. This research saves lives. After 65 years of fighting blood cancers, we've arrived at a game-changing belief. The cures for cancer are in our blood. The drugs and treatments we've developed for blood cancers have helped people affected by many different types of cancers. We are the Leukemia and Lymphoma Society. Beating cancer is in our blood. Learn more at LLS.org. back, uh, we should uh, remind you that in the next hour, we're going to be joined by Major General Jeffrey Slosher, and he is author of a new book called Marathon War, Leadership in Combat in Afghanistan, and he is the former uh, commander of the 101st Airborne that was involved in Afghanistan, and he is now retired, written a new book, and we will be discussing the uh, the, the wisdom or lack of same from the U.S. policy uh, in Afghanistan, not only the policy we've been living under for the last 20 years, but the policy that is uh, lies ahead in the next uh, next 20 years or next 20 months. And uh, he will be our special guest, and you will have an opportunity to give him a call at 708-250-6844. I promised a brief discussion. We've only got a short segment left, but uh, give me the uh, – let me ask you this, uh, Georgia – one of the concerns that Democrats have is that some people will be disenfranchised if the Republican legislatures around the country have their way. My question to you, at the core of many of these legislative uh, options, is the demand or the requirement that people have uh, a valid ID. Why is a valid ID a controversial issue in your view? 
There's been many studies, and I'm sure that your your viewers can Google them, um, that show that it does impact people's right to vote because there are certain communities that don't have an ID or don't have access to an ID. And I think it's not necessarily that these bills are being introduced for voter ID. I can tell you voter ID is something that progressives have been fighting against for a while. That ship has sailed, I believe. What they're fighting against is restrictive voter ID. And what does that mean? That means that you're willing to take, for example, a, uh, a, a FOID card or a, you know, a license to carry a firearm as ID to vote, but you're not going to take a student's ID from a university. Or the person that is 90 years old and doesn't have their birth certificate and can't access that, that, that process to get an ID to vote, what is the workaround for those types of instances? Because I think we can all agree on this call, Republican or Democrat, no one should be denied their right to vote simply because they can't have access, the government won't give them the paperwork necessary. So I think that in states that that voter ID battle has been lost, you see now a move to try and make those IDs accessible, meaning affordable easy to obtain so you don't have to run around and get a million different documents dating mm-hmm. back decades to try and get those IDs. Um, and that also the process to present them at the polls is fair and that voters know they're right. Okay, stand um, by. But, let's get let's, let's get Judith's yeah. response just to that point about the about the voter ID card or the the ID card. The ID card. So, back in 2008, the Supreme Court of the United States in a case involving Indiana uh, just before the primary with Barack Obama, came up with a, a a ruling that people who voted in the Indiana primary for president and anything else in the primary had to have a voter ID, okay? And, and the reason that they said voter ID was okay is because the state of Indiana said, anybody who wants an ID, we'll give them a free ID. We'll make it possible. We'll go around and go to all the people in nursing homes, people who are on Social Security, who can't get there, who can't get to the, to the courthouse, whatever. We're going to make sure anybody who wants to vote can get a voter ID. And on that basis, the Supreme Court, back in 2008, said voter ID is fine. And they've never really backed away from that, okay? Uh, that was a big problem in in the uh, primary in 2008, uh, and, but but and it was it was something that happened literally six days before the primary, and I know because I worked that primary on behalf of Hillary Clinton. Surprise, surprise, Bruce. But but in any event, voter ID. You have to know who's voting. This is the United States of America. People who are not citizens of the United States of America should not vote. People who don't live in the state should not vote. Or they should vote in the state in which they come from. Should a 90-year-old woman who does not have her birth certificate, should she vote or not? She should vote, and there are ways to make it possible for her to vote. It is something that the states can work out. You do not... Do you agree with that, Georgia? That I mean, the, the, the case that you made about the 90-year-old woman, do you agree that, that in those instances where that is the instance, uh, there's a workaround to the 90-year-old woman? There, there are instances, and I encourage people to look at them online. I mean... It's from a very privileged position to say, well, they can figure out a way to vote or they can get the free ID. 
all of us that fight against like those long lines of the DMV or, or shake our fists at, at, at government paperwork, right? Um, read about these stories, and there's lawsuits filed over them where a lot of people, you know, especially when you get to that age bracket, those documents simply don't exist. And so you're sent through this rabbit hole of government agencies where they keep saying, well, we can't get a copy of your birth certificate because, you know, we don't have those records from the 1900s or something these, like that. These are and, apocryphal stories. People are but, able to get IDs for at the but, age but of I 90 for all kinds moment, of reasons. I think it is undisputable that there are absolutely, unequivocally instances where it is impossible for people to get the IDs, whether it's a, no matter if it's free or not. They may not have the paperwork. And so I, my I'm question sorry, is, I don't, why I don't agree with you. I really okay. don't I agree with you. I'm sorry. So okay. restrictively to make it so difficult to get people to have that ID. And I think it's, it's interesting that all of these people that rail for, well, we need to know who, who's voting, and, and that's absolutely true. We want to know and that every eligible voter that walks into that voting booth or fills out a ballot is that person absolutely, right? Right. Um, but why does, it, why does it only stop there, though? Why do you have to compound that, though, with making it more difficult for people to vote? So I think... In what way? In what way are you making it more difficult? If they, uh, enact, if they enacted voter ID while also expanding, for example, early voting hours or increasing the number of drop boxes, then we would say this is not a campaign against communities. That's to got vote. nothing to but do with voter ID. And we, a campaign right. meant to dissuade people from voting. Georgia, we are out of time for that discussion. I'm sure that we'll be able to pick it up because I don't think it's going to be resolved between now and the next time. Hopefully you will return to this broadcast from the Daily Cost. Thanks very much for joining us, Georgia. And also, uh, Judith Sherwin, we thank you very much for joining us in our number one. This is the story of a very special woman. In a matter of seconds, she turned herself into a great mathematician or an entrepreneur. Her knowledge was limitless and still is. She could also make monsters disappear, especially those that lurked in the shadows under the bed. Once, this woman put back together a teenage girl's broken heart, which had been shattered in a thousand pieces. Just by giving her a bear hug, she masqueraded as a regular person at work, but as a superhero at home. Everyone knows her as Gabriella. I still call her mom. Your hero needs you now, and AARP is here to help. Find the care guides you need to help, complete with tips and resources, at aarp.org caregiving. A public service announcement brought to you by AARP and the Ad Council. No word in the English language is less convincing than probably. Are you sure we should get matching tattoos on our first date? Sure. Um, we'll probably stay together. Probably? <laughs> it's been 23 minutes since I ate. I can probably swim. Uh, you should wait 30 minutes. Mm, okay, now tell me what to do. Cannonball! Cramp! Oh, I have a cramp. I can probably hit the green from here. Probably. Can I get a mulligan? Ready to go? Hey, are you sure you're okay to drive? Yeah, I'm pretty sober. Yeah, I'm probably okay. Probably okay? 
isn't okay, especially when it comes to drinking and driving. If you're drinking, call a cab, a car, or a friend. Buzz driving is drunk driving. A message brought to you by NHTSA and the Ad Council. One in three adults has pre-diabetes. One in three. That means it could be you, your football buddy, your football buddy, or you, your best man, your worst man, you, your dog walker, your cat jogger. While one in three adults has pre-diabetes, with early diagnosis, pre-diabetes can be reversed. Take the risk test at doihaveprediabetes.org. That's doihaveprediabetes.org. Wait, did they just say one in three adults has pre-diabetes? That's 33.33333% of adults. That means it could be me, my boss, or my boss's boss, or me, my favorite sister, or my other sister. That's seven members of my 21-person romantic book club. <gasps> Wait, the one in three could be me, my karaoke partner Carol, or ugh, my karaoke enemy Jeff. I'm going to take the risk test at doihaveprediabetes.org. Brought to you by the Ad Council and its pre-diabetes awareness partners. What if the music stopped? If the familiar voices were silent? back for hour number two of Beyond the Beltway. Thank you very much for joining us. Judith Sherwin, a conservative Republican attorney, continues with me here in the studio at WIND AM 560 in beautiful Elk Grove Village. And we are now joined uh, via Zoom by Major General Jeffrey Schlosser. He is author of a new book called Marathon War, Leadership in Combat in Afghanistan. He has spent a lot of time there, was the head of the uh, 101st Airborne. And, uh, uh, General, nice to have you with us on uh, Beyond the Beltway this evening. Hey, Bruce, thanks for having me. I really appreciate it. Thank you. I'd like to begin, before we get into some specifics about the book, I'd like to get your assessment. When, when Americans read about that the United States is about to pull out of Afghanistan, uh, what does that mean uh, to you as a, as a major general? Does it mean no one is going to be there, or is there uh, a, a group of people that have been unidentified uh, insofar as number is concerned? Well, I think that what you're going to see, Bruce, is that uh, you know the administration's announced there's going to be about 650 military there to just protect uh, the U.S. Embassy and, and our interests there in Kabul. Mm-hmm. Um, I think that they'll do some support to keep Kabul International Airport open. You're also going to see, I think, um, from outside of the country, you're going to see uh, some counterterrorism strikes, whether they're from predators or UAVs or things of that nature. Uh, but by and large, this administration has said they're leaving lock, stock, and barrel. And, uh, you know, they're pretty much already withdrawn. They've closed the main airfield there at Bagram. The majority of any kind of uh, advisory missions that we have been doing over the last several years are ended, uh, other than trying to do it via Zoom, which is pretty darn hard to do if you're trying to train a, an Afghan to uh, fix an aircraft or something like that. So, no, I take this administration at its word. Uh, they're leaving. How do you feel about that? Well, I'm obviously uh, torn. Let me just be honest with everybody. Uh, you know, this war has been... Uh, a three-generation war from the Schlosser family. Uh, mm-hmm. My dad was uh, Army and uh, served in the, from uh, the Army of Occupation in Germany, where I was a youngster. 
all the way through Korea, three tours in Vietnam. And then when he retired, he uh, was a contractor and went to Kabul for a few months to uh, help them uh, set up their Ministry of Defense. Obviously, I served there 15 months in combat, commanding the 101st Airborne Division. Uh, my son later, as an uh, Army officer, served in Afghanistan as well for a lengthy tour. So that's three generations. And I'm not one to believe in forever war. Mm-hmm. I'm, I just as soon, uh, uh, you know, uh, declare our victory when it is a victory and, and get out of the way. Unfortunately, I have the other feeling that uh, uh, that what we are doing is going to be a strategic mistake for the United States. I, uh, I can lay it out, you know, in about two or three minutes, but it, it essentially is not good what's about to happen to both Afghans uh, as well as uh, our United States uh, over a period of time. Take the two minutes and share that with us, General. Okay. So, Bruce, what you're seeing right now is, is that uh, uh, there was a, in theory, a treaty or, you know, an agreement uh, with the Taliban. Um, the Taliban never decided that there was going to be a political end to that. And so they've been going through some motions. And I think it's all purely, to be quite blunt, BS, uh, working with the Afghan government or basically essentially ignoring them. Meanwhile, they've, they've gained ground through combat operations, uh, both in the north and in the south. And uh, we're not there to help provide a stiffer backbone via airstrikes or advisors. Uh, I want to remind everybody that we have not lost a single U.S. troop to combat in Afghanistan in over a year. We've been advising, you know, we've been flying air missions mm-hmm. and things of that nature. But uh, as this proceeds now, as we're and we're essentially gone, as I've already said, um, we're doing limited airstrikes right now to make sure that they don't take over Kandahar before at least we declare that we're out of there. Uh, Kandahar is the southern, it's not the capital, but it's the seven, uh, southern city that has long been extremely important in Afghan history. Mm-hmm. Um, and what you're seeing, I mean, is, is that as the Taliban take over, uh, the Afghan army's folding in those locations. In some cases, they're giving up. In other cases, they walked across the border in Tajikistan, a thousand Afghans. Think about it, soldiers. Mm-hmm. Um, and what's going to happen in this place is uh, the militias that were extant after um, the Soviets left uh, from their invasion back in 1989, these militias will come back out. They're based on ethnic groups, tribes, you name it. Um, and uh, they will fight the Taliban, but eventually they'll also fight each other. And so you're going to see a civil war that is pretty significant. It's going to make what's currently going on look uh, like a small endeavor. And in that aftermath, you're going to have uh, Al-Qaeda come back in, and it will be the safe haven that it was before 9-11. And Al-Qaeda doesn't care about running a country like Afghanistan. What they care about is striking the United States and our uh, allies and our partners around the world. They look for chaos. Um, and uh, you're going to see that again. Yeah, You're going to see them plotting against the United States. The second thing is I mean, that's terrible. Uh, but the next thing that's also equally terrible is, is that in 9-11, there were children born right after that uh, that had a promise that we gave them, that we and our allies gave them, which was you can go to school, you can have medical care. You know, the, right now the, the life expectancy has increased 10 years for an Afghan um, over uh, since uh, prior to 9-11. Um, you can go and be what you want to be. There are women that are, are radio journalists, Bruce. I mean, uh, that was unheard of before, mm-hmm. and it will be unheard of again. Um, actresses, models, politicians, 
uh, you name it, business people. We gave them a future. We gave them a hope for the future, and now it's going away. And the Taliban are going to do a lot, just about everything in their power to take away that future for women, for sure. And I think uh, just about three or four weeks ago, President Bush mentioned that then said he was very anguished about uh, what's going to happen to the women of Afghanistan. And I share that anguish. We see, um, we see, we ahead. see and read stories about Afghan troops that literally throw down their weapons and, and run towards the Taliban or run towards the border. Uh, what was the quality of the Afghan troop when you were in charge? Did, did you foresee this happening or uh, you were obviously confident that it wouldn't, but how did you really feel when you were in charge there? I think over 15 months, I went from a position of not being very clear about how competent they were to believing in the competency of certain units that uh, trained with us, trained with uh, you know the 101st Airborne Division, had our own procedures and essentially had our advisors with them, but they also had the backbone. I mean, in other words, we fought with them, right? Um, what happened over the last several years is, is that you had some very good units, the special forces, uh, which are the commandos in Afghanistan are still very good outputs. Um, but they need the air support. And without, that, without air support, either from the Afghans, and um, that's going to pretty, pretty much fold up, too, because they're not going to be able to maintain the aircraft that they have uh, without us. But uh, without that air support from us, uh, that backbone kind of goes away. Uh, the rest of the units, some were corrupt. Some had corrupt leaders. Bruce, uh, the truth is, is that the level of corruption over the, my 15 months, it was like a, uh, like a brilliant flashlight being put on my uh, in, in, in my eyes. I, I did not realize the corruption that was endemic in that country. General, uh, thank you very much for joining us. This is Jeffrey Slosser. His new book is called Marathon War. I'm Bruce Dumont. We will continue along with Judith Sherwin, who's got some questions. Don't go away. 1-800-723-8289. One forty-five over ninety-two. One eighty over one eleven. One hundred and eighty-two over a hundred, and I had a heart attack and a cardiac arrest, and then a stroke. Your blood pressure numbers could change your life. A lot of people don't understand, including myself. I didn't. Now I do. Uh, the impact of having a stroke. My memory is shot. When I woke up, I couldn't speak. Lowering your high blood pressure could save you from a heart attack or stroke. If you've stopped your treatment plan, restart it, or talk to your doctor about creating one that works better for you. Start taking the right steps at manageyourbp.org. It's a new life, but I'm going to make it better. I'm coming back. Ask your doctor. Check your blood pressure. Brought to you by the American Heart Association, American Medical Association, and the Ad Council. It's a bully, but we aren't afraid of a fight. It's elusive, but our focus never fades. It's deadly, but we were born to defeat cancer. You may not have heard of us, but our work has helped millions impacted by cancer. We are the Leukemia and Lymphoma Society. We are leaders in advancing breakthroughs in immunotherapy, genomics, and personalized medicine. This research saves lives. After 65 years of fighting blood cancers, we've arrived at a game-changing belief. 
The cures for cancer are in our blood. The drugs and treatments we've developed for blood cancers have helped people affected by many different types of cancers. We are the Leukemia and Lymphoma Society. Beating cancer is in our blood. Learn more at LLS.org. This is the story of a very special woman. In a matter of seconds, she turned herself into a great mathematician or an entrepreneur. Her knowledge was limitless and still is. She could also make monsters disappear, especially those that lurked in the shadows under the bed. Once, this woman put back together a teenage girl's broken heart, which had been shattered in a thousand pieces just by giving her a bear hug. She masqueraded as a regular person at work, but as a superhero at home. Everyone knows her as Gabriella. I still call her mom. Your hero needs you now, and AARP is here to help. Find the care guides you need to help, complete with tips and resources, at aarp.org caregiving. A public service announcement brought to you by AARP and the Ad Council. Bruce Dumont back. We continue on Beyond the Beltway, 1-800-723-8049. Major General Jeff Lee Schlosser joins us. He is author of the new book called Marathon War, Leadership in Combat in Afghanistan. He headed the 101st Airborne uh, when it was stationed uh, in Afghanistan. He's been offering his his assessment of uh, what has transpired there. And, uh, General, you mentioned that there were there will be 650 uh, U.S. troops there to defend uh, the embassy uh, when, uh, you know, when all is said and done. Uh, when that happens, what is going to be the closest air base or military uh, location uh, that could react to anything that happens in that uh, region of the world? Yeah, great question, Bruce. And so there are air bases in Qatar and the UAE. So you're still talking about uh, a lengthy flight to get there, even, uh, you know, uh, and with the afterburner, it's, uh, it's, it's, it's going to be about an hour. More likely than not, you're going to have aircraft carrier. There is one right now operating off the, you know, in the um, Arabian Sea, Persian Gulf, mm. however you want to call it. Um, and again, it's still it's a lengthy tour. I mean, a trip up there, and they have to get air to air refueling and things of that nature. That's right now part of the limitations that we have. And uh, um, you know, my guess is going to be I've understood that there are going to be some um, uh, helicopters stationed at Kabul International that will be uh, run by the Department of State. That would be three or four minutes if they had to do, and I'm not predicting this, Bruce. I'm not, but you know, I'm old enough to remember uh, 1975 uh, Americans being picked off the right. top of the embassy mm-hmm. in Saigon. Tragic and, story. Uh, Lord knows we do not want to see that. Now that's uh, that's and, really uh, one of the but, most tragic photographs that I can remember. A right. photograph that is indelibly etched uh, uh, in my mind. One last question, and then Judith Sherwin, who has been here and she's uh, read the book and she's got lots of questions for you. Uh, but uh, th- this goes back to the beginning of the selling of why we why we began a, a war in Afghanistan. The, the case obviously was made uh, to the American people and members of Congress. 
But one thing that I don't recall being said, this is even the debates that, that began shortly after uh, we, we entered the war. Uh, historically, in Germany, in, in Japan, when America goes to war, 50 or 60 years later, there's a large contingent of American soldiers in those countries. Why was that concept not introduced or sold to the American people? Because that's what happens when America goes to war. Yeah. And Bruce, I think what happened, and uh, again, an excellent question. I, I think what happened in, uh, was as we went in initially you know, after 9-11, and it was, we were there within a month, as you know, mm -hmm. uh, with limited forces, but we went in with very limited goals. And the goals at that time initially were just to uh, bring uh, Al-Qaeda to justice and then also to uh, remove the Taliban from Afghanistan since we had asked them uh, to deliver Al-Qaeda, and they said no. And, uh, and we said, okay, well, you're leaving the country. Um, and we pushed them out. Some were captured, some were killed. And uh, uh, it took a lengthy period of time, as most of us know, almost 10 years to find Osama bin Laden. He, he was getting safe haven there in Pakistan. Um, and uh, But in the meantime, basically, uh, you know, we really put a heck of a lot of pressure on Al-Qaeda. Um, as you reverse that and say, okay, now what? Um, what we didn't say initially was, is this is a war of national interest where we are gonna be here. We are gonna make darn sure that this economy and this government um, is a flourishing one that is one that is uh, allied to the United States. And that's what we did in Germany. That's what we right. still in Germany. Mm -hmm. uh, you know, again, that's another three generations. Uh, right. My son served there, I've served there twice. Yep. My father obviously served there in the 50s. Um, Korea, uh, we still have troops in Korea, obviously, and we have troops in Japan. And in all three of those locations, it's in our national interest to do so. We just never really got there. Even when we were sort of rolling up our sleeves and saying, you know what, there's nothing in Afghanistan. We have got to help them. Uh, you know, whether it's uh, schools for uh, children, uh, hospitals, uh, minimum amount of security from the gangs and things of that nature. We never really, I, I think, made a long-term commitment to the American people. And, uh, you know, over the last few years, we've just really been advising and teaching the Afghans how to run their army um, and uh, their Air Corps. And, uh, and it's going to take probably a longer uh, amount of effort. I don't know how we're going to be able to do it from afar, to be quite frank with you. Um, but you're absolutely right. If, you know, if, it's, if it was so important for us to go in there and stay in there and prevent Al-Qaeda from regrowing in Afghanistan, we should have started with the American people and just said, you know what, it may not be a lot of troops, uh, but it's going to be some troops. Mm -hmm. And uh, it won't be combat so much, but it will be advising forces that are fighting. Mm -hmm. But we didn't do that. And, and so here we are. Judith Sherwin joins us. She's a conservative uh, attorney in the Chicagoland area, frequent guest on this program. Uh, she has read the book, and she's got a few questions for you. Uh, General, it's Great. really it's really an honor to be on the air with you, and I hope my questions uh, will will be worthy of uh, of your book and and your service. Um, you know, going back to the days after nine eleven and the start of the war in Afghanistan. The the overwhelming feature, I think, that that uh, for civilians in the United States, there was no feeling like we were at war 
we were going in there, we were going to knock these people out, it was all going to go away, and everything was going to be fine. And, and of course, that never happened. And, and, um, and then we kind of switched over into this idea of nation building, which I would submit is something that we did after World War II. We built up Japan, we built up Germany, uh, after Korea, we built up South Korea. And, and, but that idea of nation building fell into disrepute, I believe, on the home front. And, and because of a lot of political factors, which I don't expect you to get into, it, that whole idea just disappeared. And, and the focus became on how do we get out of here as fast as we can possibly get out of here? And, and um, this is just going on too long. And the longer it went on, of course, it was going on too long. So what, what, what did you see from your end of things in terms of this nation-building idea? And, and why do you think it failed? Well, you know, I think, Judith, that, you know, I would say that uh, we had always thought when we went into Afghanistan initially, like I, I mentioned to, to, to Bruce, it, this was part of our global war on terrorism. We felt Al-Qaeda had declared a, a global war against us, and, and we were not going to any, any longer put up with things like the coal bombing, you know, bombing of our ships and things of that nature. Uh, we were going to go and get rid of these transnational terrorists. And so we kind of chalked Afghanistan up as destination number one on this rather broad global war on terrorism. And as, as you recall, in 2003, um, the Bush administration decided that they would broaden that into Iraq. I mean, the initial portion, the reason we went into Iraq uh, was, in fact, because we believed that they had uh, uh, weapons of mass destruction and uh, had been working with uh, various terrorist groups. And we were afraid that they would uh, end up on our American soil to kill people. Um, so that was another part of the global war on terrorism, and we were involved elsewhere in Africa, as you know, and other places like that. I don't think it was, it was probably years, certainly by 2007, there's no doubt, as I started going into Afghanistan uh, to make sure that I was prepared before we went in in 2008 and 2009 for 15 months, by then, it was very clear that our tra our strategy had changed, and, and and in fact, what it was was, by then it was okay. We're going to provide enough security so that we can have help the Afghan people uh, with their economy. In other words, create enough jobs, keep create enough at least farming and things of that nature, so that they could. Uh, uh, make a living. The Afghans had essentially forgotten how to farm after 40 years of conflict. Uh, and we were literally bringing in National Guardsmen who were uh, farmers uh, to teach them how to farm, if you can believe that. Um, and also we wanted to link them for the first time probably in the, in, in the history of Afghanistan to their national government uh, uh, there in Kabul. And that is clearly uh, what I would call nation building. I think we felt we could do it on the cheap. Um, on my personal belief is is that uh, we turned the country over to the Afghans too early. Uh, when, as I was mentioning to Bruce, I, I was a youngster uh, 
um, right after, well, after World War II in, in Germany, but it wasn't right immediately after. I, it was 1954 when I was there as a youngster. Mm-hmm. Uh, yeah, there was, it was still an army of occupation. So think about that. It was essentially eight to nine years later right. after the end of the war. Um, and and just the, the pictures that I have from that time when I'm a, I'm a one-year-old and two-year-old, three-year-old are almost all of me standing in rubble. Uh, the country had not yet been rebuilt, but we were working with the Germans to try to rebuild it in a way that they would never again fight uh, uh, the United States or the allies that fought against uh, you know, Nazi Germany back in World War II. We did not really make that commitment to Afghanistan, and, and perhaps we're paying that price now. When you heard that uh, there were weapons of mass destruction in Iraq, which was the reason why we were going to expand the war to Iraq. I need a short 10-second answer. Did you believe that information? I initially did, but boy, I sure didn't after four months of looking. I, could, I was Iraq, I was the deputy to Petraeus in Iraq in the 101st. Right. Mm-hmm. When we come back, I want to pick up that discussion about the decision to go into Iraq and also more about Afghanistan. And if you have questions, 1-800-723-8289, a great opportunity to talk to a major general who was there. I'm Bruce Dumont. Don't go away. No word in the English language is less convincing than probably. Are you sure we should get matching tattoos on our first date? Sure. Um, We'll probably stay together. Probably? (laughs) It's been 23 minutes since I ate. I can probably swim. Uh, You should wait 30 minutes. Mm, Okay, tell me what to do. Cannonball! Cramp! I have a cramp. I can probably hit the green from here. Probably. Can I get a mulligan? Ready to go? Hey, are you sure you're okay to drive? Yeah, I'm pretty sober. Yeah, I'm probably okay. Probably okay isn't okay, especially when it comes to drinking and driving. If you're drinking, call a cab, a car, or a friend. Buzz driving is drunk driving. A message brought to you by NHTSA and the Ad Council. One in three adults has prediabetes. One in three. That means it could be you, your football buddy, your football buddy, or you, your best man, your worst man, you, your dog walker, your cat jogger. While one in three adults has prediabetes, with early diagnosis, prediabetes can be reversed. Take the risk test at doihaveprediabetes.org. That's doihaveprediabetes.org. Wait, did they just say one in three adults has prediabetes? That's 33.33333% of adults. That means it could be me, my boss, or my boss's boss, or me, my favorite sister, or my other sister. That's seven members of my 21-person romantic book club. (gasps) Wait, the one in three could be me, my karaoke partner Carol, or my karaoke enemy Jeff. I'm going to take the risk test at doihaveprediabetes.org. Brought to you by the Ad Council and its pre-diabetes awareness partners. 145 over 92. 180 over 111. 182 over 100. And I had a heart attack and a cardiac arrest. And then a stroke. 
Your blood pressure numbers could change your life. A lot of people don't understand, including myself, I didn't, now I do, uh, the impact of having a stroke. My memory is shot. When I woke up, I couldn't speak. Lowering your high blood pressure could save you from a heart attack or stroke. If you've stopped your treatment plan, restart it, or talk to your doctor about creating one that works better for you. Start taking the right steps at manageyourbp.org. It's a new life, but I'm going to make it better. I'm coming back. Ask your doctor. Check your blood pressure. Brought to you by the American Heart Association, American Medical Association, and the Ad Council. The name of the book is Marathon War, Leadership in Combat in Afghanistan. Major General Jeffrey Slosher is joining us this evening, as well as uh, Judith Sherwin. And uh, at this point in the broadcast uh, each week, uh, Major General, we uh, let each of our guests uh, take a little moment to explain a little more about uh, their background above and beyond how I've introduced them. So uh, take 20 seconds and tell us a little bit more about uh, uh, your career up to uh, writing this book. So I entered the Army, uh, Bruce, as a private first class. That's very low on the totem pole, yep. if you're not familiar with the Army for our Army. listeners. Uh, and 34 years later, I left the Army as a major general. In between, I served all around the world. You know, they say, join the Army, see the world. Uh, Afghanistan, Iraq, Kosovo, Albania, Jordan, Kuwait, Germany, Korea, uh, I think El Haiti, uh, all the places that I lived for a lengthy period of time, some with my family. Mm-hmm. Um, but I got to work strategically you know, with presidents, fight still with soldiers out on the ground. And there's not a day I don't miss the troops and leading them in combat. Um, and then, of course, working with the families. It was a real privilege. And, uh, you know, while it was extraordinarily challenging and altered my life in many, many ways, it was it was really an honor to be able to serve America that way. Is the toughest part of your job reaching out and sharing news of uh, a troop's death with someone? For me, yes, it was. Um, although, you know, I, I think uh, the harder part would have been what my wife had to do. I don't think I could have done as much like she did. She had to go to to homes and, and actually inform the spouses of the death of uh, their soldier. Mm-hmm. Um, my job was to write them and try to put context to their life and to the war. And uh, I didn't try to, you know, mealy mouth it. Uh, I basically told them that uh, their soldier's life was or Marine or sailor or man, because I had all. Uh, was worth it for America because we had prevented an attack, another attack on our country, mm-hmm. and that they died with honor. And uh, you know, even in the Bible, it goes back. I mean, if you give one life, your life for somebody else, there's not much better you you know as far as being a human being in, in the world. And uh, it takes a, a an incredible person to be willing to do that. Um, and so the answer though is yes trying to write and put that in the context and then later meeting with families was incredibly difficult, um, but so important, you know. What would you say tonight to those listening or watching this program who had a loved one who, who died or was killed 
in Afghanistan or, or any uh, Iraq or, or any war. Um, what would you specifically, though, about Afghanistan, since we are soon to, to pull out with just a, a, a minimum number of troops there after 20 years, what would you say to them who have who've lost a loved one there tonight? I would say to them specifically tonight, I would say that the loss of your loved one, they gave their life for all of us here in America. And we've enjoyed two decades, 20 years of uh, not being attacked on our soil uh, by terrorists. And that's extraordinarily important. I will also say that, as I say in the end of my book, the last paragraph, um, we gave hope to a whole generation of Afghans that had zero hope. And now there are millions and millions of them. And if they can't stay in Afghanistan, they're going to go out in the world and do good things for the world. But we gave them hope, and that's extraordinarily important. And the, your loved one's loss is tragic. But uh, those two things, protecting America for 20 years and then giving hope to a whole future generation of Afghans, I think is extraordinarily important. When we hear of uh, American military troops, uh, it's always tied to love of country in most cases. Um, does, does the Afghan of today, one who served in their army in the past and is expected to keep their country together in the future, do they understand the concept of love of country like we do? I think that uh, it is something that can be learned over a period of time. And there are certainly Afghans out there that are great patriots. Um, but the country is, is, is divided ethnically. It's divided uh, by, on religious Sunni versus Shia um, and by tribes. And so they initially, I think most Afghans, if you ask them, they'll define themselves by their tribe, by their religion, and uh, by their ethnic group. And then they'll say, oh, by the way, I'm a proud Afghan patriot. Maybe they may say that. Mm -hmm. Whereas, you know, I hope that most Americans, I mean, and I realize that we have right now some pretty divisive politics, but by, when, when the chips go down, when somebody attacks us, like they're, you know, being attacked in Afghanistan, we turn right out and we go, you know what, I'm American first, right? Um, and then I'm from, you name your state, Utah, Colorado, Chicago, I mean, you know, Illinois, I mean, mm -hmm. whatever it is. Right. And we rarely would even say what, what religion we are or anything of that nature. It is, it is different. And, uh, and I want to say that, I mean, I, that's one of the things that make me proud about being an American. Mm -hmm. um, it is serving, you know, I've served so much of my career overseas. And, and Afghanistan wasn't my only rodeo as far as war, and uh, uh, by any means. Um, but when you see other countries and you see other peoples and you see other armies, that's what makes me so proud to be an American. One of the issues that has received quite a bit of publicity lately is what do we do with and how do we assist those Afghanis who were helping U.S. military operations for umpteen years. Uh, they've got to get back. They've got to get the right paperwork to maybe come to the United States. And uh, at least the stories I've read is there's, there's a lot of red tape involved with it. So w what would you say about the role that, that Afghanis who helped U.S. troops, how important were they? What was the quality of those people? And uh, what should happen to them now? Because they fear if they stay back, uh, in Afghanistan, the Taliban will murder them and their families. 
Yeah. Uh, by and large, I found the quality of the interpreters, the translators, and others that assisted us, many of them in intelligence fields um, that we don't talk about much, um, to be very, very high. I mean, uh, the majority of them were very well educated. Some were educated. They spoke English sometimes by learning it from uh, li listening to radio from Voice of America and things of that nature. But by and large, these, these were great, great people to assist the United States. We made a promise to them, and that was is that, you know, if the chips go down, we will get you out of the country. We will get you out of the country, and we will also take care of your family. And I think we still owe it to them. And, you know, we're beginning now, you're, I believe this next week to two weeks, you'll see the first tranche, maybe about 2,500 or so, will be flown to Fort Lee, Virginia. And uh, I'm understanding that they are trying to, um, you know, make bases available in some of the other places that facilities that we have in Kuwait, mm -hmm. perhaps in Qatar as well, in the region, for those that have yet not passed all the, you know, the uh, paperwork test, the bureaucracy. As, as far as, I mean, this is my country too, and I, I, we need to get off our uh, rear end um, and help these people. Uh, you know, I was talking to Canadian radio yesterday and they have the same issue. Um, and the veterans have gotten together and they said, if the government's not gonna react fast enough, we're gonna do it ourselves. Uh, in other words, fly the interpreters that work with the Canadian forces. Mm -hmm. There are a whole bunch of other allies, NATO allies, that had uh, interpreters working with them. Again, you know, every language is, is different. German to Afghan or to uh, Posh, um, Farsi or uh, to uh, Dari or whatever is different than English to, to that. And, uh, and so it required very specific skill sets from these translators. All of us, all of us, uh, America and our allies, we better get off our duff and and get these people out of there. Will Otherwise, they, will they, will they how be will able you go someplace else? Yeah, will they be able go to ahead. assimilate or is the fear of retaliation by the Taliban so much so, even on U.S. soil, is that fear there that they feel they would have to be almost in a witness protection program here? No, I don't think that, you know, the Taliban is not a transnational terrorist group like okay. others. Um, I do. But we have a fair number of Afghans in our country, just like we've got a large number of uh, you know people that came from other different conflicts mm -hmm. uh, where mm -hmm. uh, either they married in with our soldiers or they actually mm -hmm. came to our country. And so in very similar circumstances, we have a wonderful Vietnamese American communities throughout the United States, for an example. Have Afghans, uh, have Afghans uh, uh, ended up going to one particular region of the country? Do you know? Uh, no. There, there are Kurds, for an example, in Nashville that there's a very significant, uh, you know, Kurdish-American uh, group there. Uh, but as far as Afghans go, uh, not not that I'm aware of. I mean, they they've done a pretty darn good job of assimilating. California has a large number of Afghan Americans, uh, but they do assimilate very 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 quickly. And uh, um, in fact, I and I, I would say that uh, they are superb at at, at doing that. Um, I think that they'll be great Americans as they come here, and they won't have to worry about the Taliban. The Taliban's not going to come to America and uh, try to hunt them down like some of these other malaligned uh, regimes do. Um, but if they stayed in uh, Afghanistan, they would be tracked down. A anyone that gave aid and comfort to the U.S. for 20 years is going to be a pariah to the uh, Taliban uh, leadership, correct? 
That's correct. And this is not just a prediction. This is already occurring, Bruce. Mm-hmm. They, they've, they've, you know, uh, assassinated a fair number already of translators uh, and interpreters um, uh, over the last, really over the last year. Mm-hmm. And uh, they actually don't stop with just them. They actually go for their families as well. And uh, uh, that's, that's the rest of the tragedy there. If they don't come out of that country, they will be hunted down. It may not be the first year. It may take a while. General Slosher, uh, stand by. We'll have another full segment coming up. Judith Sherwin has a few more questions for you. I'm Bruce Dumont. Thanks very much for joining us tonight on Beyond the Beltway. Hi, I'm Dr. Nia Hurd-Garris with today's tip for kids from the American Academy of Pediatrics. As parents, we want our children to grow up healthy and strong. That means helping teens take responsibility for their health as they become young adults. One way to do that is to make sure they have one-on-one time with their pediatrician. That helps them become comfortable talking about any health issue with their doctors and with you. So make sure to give your teen a voice. It's good for their health. For more on teen health, visit HealthyChildren.org. Jill, why don't you tell the class what you did this weekend? Well, my dad and I went in search of some magical minnows and found a zillion of them in the stream from our lookout rock. Then my sister and I escaped from an evil slug king and went back to my super twig fort for safety. Then we told stories till it got dark and the Big Dipper led us all the way home. Where were you, Jill? We went to the forest. It's not that far away. Ask your parents to take you and your friends to the forest this week. It's closer than you think. Check out discovertheforest.org. Brought to you by the U.S. Forest Service and the Ad Council. It's a bully, but we aren't afraid of a fight. It's elusive, but our focus never fades. It's deadly, but we were born to defeat cancer. You may not have heard of us, but our work has helped millions impacted by cancer. We are the Leukemia and Lymphoma Society. We are leaders in advancing breakthroughs in immunotherapy, genomics, and personalized medicine. This research saves lives. After 65 years of fighting blood cancers, we've arrived at a game-changing belief. The cures for cancer are in our blood. The drugs and treatments we've developed for blood cancers have helped people affected by many different types of cancers. We are the Leukemia and Lymphoma Society. Beating cancer is in our blood. Learn more at LLS.org. No word in the English language is less convincing than probably. Are you sure we should get matching tattoos on our first date? Sure. Um, We'll probably stay together. Probably? (laughs) It's been 23 minutes since I ate. I can probably swim. Uh, You should wait 30 minutes. Mm, Okay, don't tell me what to do. Cannonball! Oh, I have a cramp. I can probably hit the green from here. Probably. Can I get a mulligan? Ready to go? Hey, are you sure you're okay to drive? Yeah, I'm pretty sober. Yeah, I'm probably okay. Probably okay isn't okay, especially when it comes to drinking and driving. If you're drinking, call a cab, a car, or a friend. Buzz driving is drunk driving. A message brought to you by NHTSA and Ad Council.
want to thank. Thanks very much for joining us this evening. And uh, we continue with the Judith Sherwin in studio and uh, Major General Jeff Lee Schlosser. Uh, the book is called Marathon War, Leadership in Combat in Afghanistan. And Judith, you've got a couple more questions for the general. Yes. Uh, general, you know, I, I tried to say it before, and I guess I just tried to get it out again. I, during the these last 20 years, there almost was no feeling like this country was actually at war. I mean, we knew we were in Afghanistan, but this sort of feeling about being at war, um, I don't know how many American people really understood that we were at war and, and what was at stake in the war. And and so it's been very enlightening and very, very good to listen to what you had to say tonight. But I'm concerned in listening to this. Um, it seems that the, the medieval nature of the country is about to resurface. You're going to have, you won't have a, the unifying force that I think the American troops have been while they were there uh, to try to bring the Afghan people together to an understanding of their country. Um, so do you see a resurgence of the Taliban in terms of of their own situation and and feeding off of the tribal situation and the and the sectarian violence that that uh, existed there, um, and and I guess the ultimate question is is whether or not you see ISIS resurging resurgence in some way, uh, coming back into this situation. Now, Judith, uh, you know, um, I, I had meant to actually mention that before your your original question about you know the uh, the lack of in many cases awareness that we were in fact at a war in Afghanistan. It's such a faraway place, and most Americans right. really couldn't uh, locate it. Mm-hmm. In, in some, I would I would wager a great number of Americans still can't locate it on a map. Um, it was very frustrating. Let me just say that it was very frustrating both to be going there and then to be coming back and to be talking to people, uh, you know, and they would be totally unaware. They'd go, oh, 15 months in Afghanistan, what was that like? It, you know, did you go to the beer stew or whatever and <laughs> yeah. things of that nature? Oh, is and it that was like still totally going on? Alien. <laughs> yeah, you know, yes, it is yeah. still going on. No, uh, that's yeah. terrible. I mean, and what did that do for yeah. morale? So let me get back to I'm sorry. What did that do for morale amongst? What did you say, Bruce? Among, what did it do for morale amongst the senior officers? You know, as, as far as you mean the Americans or the? Yeah, no. I, mean, I, I would I mean, say the, that the, you know, the, fa- the, fa- the fact yeah, that I think as you just said is that you know you're you're there uh, you know trying to win a war and fight a war, and uh, you may be talking to relatives back home, who have said to you. We haven't heard anything about this war for two weeks on the network television. I mean, I'm sure you heard that. That yeah. it wasn't I mean, it wasn't top of mind like uh, like Iraq. I mean, Iraq was top of mind for quite a while, but Afghanistan was just. It sure was. Yeah. Right. You know, I mean, you could actually say that, and this follows up. You know, with Judas' uh, note, I mean, uh, our first question uh, is: it was essentially a forgotten war. Um, you know, uh, I mean, I, I think, you know, what we have now in our country, it's, a, you know, all volunteer services, military service, less than uh, 1% of Americans serve in their military. And, and so very few people actually know people that go off into these conflicts mm-hmm. or actually even serve in uniform. And uh, that's really a, probably a completely separate question uh, is something that 
And while I believe in all volunteer force, it's a high, very high quality military force, it does end up being so that uh, people don't pay any attention to when America decides to go go do something of this nature and put its uh, troops into uh, conflict. It's easy to forget. It's easy not even to pay attention. Mm-hmm. And uh, and that's, I think, is a tragedy. I, I do want to address uh, Judith's question about what about the future as far as, you know, uh, uh, some of these uh, terrorist groups. And so let me just be clear, Al-Qaeda clearly uh, has never really broken its relationship with the Taliban. And you will definitely see them. You already are. They are already, without going into any kind of classified things, they're already in the country. Um, they'll be setting up camps. They will be plotting. Islamic State's a different type of a group. And uh, I think to recall for all of our listeners and viewers here that uh, Islamic State basically ended up setting up their own virtual country in the northern part of Iraq and in Syria. And the United States had to go back into Iraq uh, to clear them out again. And we're still there. We have more troops there right now in in Syria uh, than we have in Afghanistan. And we still have thousands of troops in Iraq. Uh, trying to ensure that Islamic State does not uh, go back. They are more of a regional player, but they are very brutal, and they will definitely fight against the United States' interest uh, whenever they possibly can. Uh, the one, if there's any blessing there, is they hate the Taliban. The Taliban and the Islamic State are fighting for uh, probably the same, they want the mm-hmm. same emirate uh, established in Afghanistan. So I'm, that will, should be interesting to watch. Yes. Uh, we've got a minute left. What word would you send to those who served in Afghanistan? They came back, they're alive, they're, they're well, and yet they may be very despondent that the United States is about to pull out. What do you say to them? I've got about 30 seconds, General. Yeah, yeah I would say be proud of your service. We kept uh, this country uh, from having any attacks for 20 years, and we gave a future to a whole generation. That's something to be proud about, and please please always remind everybody else that uh, uh, that your service was with honor. That's all I can say. Mm-hmm. General Eric Thomas, I'm sorry, General, thank you very much. Not Eric Thomas, but but General Jeffrey Schlosser, thank you very much for joining us this evening. Major General, many years of service to the United States. The book is called Marathon War, Leadership in Combat in Afghanistan. Thank you for your service, Major General. And again, we hope everyone will enjoy the book, Marathon War. I'm Bruce Dumont. Thanks to uh, uh, every Marcus Brown and uh, Eric Thomas and Keith Conrad and Andrew Marshall for their assistance in the production of this program. We thank you very much, especially the folks, uh, Eric Thomas. He's been here night and day. I think he's uh, I think he's camped out here a couple of nights to get us ready for tonight's radio and video broadcast. And hopefully everybody enjoyed it, not only on America's great radio stations, but also on Facebook Live and also on YouTube. I'm Bruce Dumont. We will see you next week back with radio and TV. So long from Elk Grove Village, Illinois. One in three adults has pre-diabetes. One in three. That means it could be you, your football buddy, your football buddy, or you, your best man, your worst man, you, your dog walker, your cat jogger. While one in three adults has pre-diabetes, with early diagnosis, pre-diabetes can be reversed. Take the risk test at doihaveprediabetes.org. That's doihaveprediabetes.org. 
Wait, did they just say one in three adults has prediabetes? That's 33.33333% of adults. That means it could be me, my boss, or my boss's boss, or me, my favorite sister, or my other sister. That's seven members of my 21-person romantic book club. <gasps> Wait, the one in three could be me, my karaoke partner Carol, or ugh, my karaoke enemy Jeff. I'm going to take the risk test at doihaveprediabetes.org. Brought to you by the Ad Council and its pre-diabetes awareness partners. 145 over 92. 180 over 111. 182 over 100. And I had a heart attack and a cardiac arrest. And then a stroke. Your blood pressure numbers could change your life. A lot of people don't understand, including myself, I didn't, now I do, uh, the impact of having a stroke. My memory is shot. When I woke up, I couldn't speak. Lowering your high blood pressure could save you from a heart attack or stroke. If you've stopped your treatment plan, restart it, or talk to your doctor about creating one that works better for you. Start taking the right steps at manageyourbp.org. It's a new life, but I'm going to make it better. I'm coming back. Ask your doctor. Check your blood pressure. Brought to you by the American Heart Association, American Medical Association, and the Ad Council. It's a bully, but we aren't afraid of a fight. It's elusive, but our focus never fades. It's deadly, but we were born to defeat cancer. You may not have heard of us, but our work has helped millions impacted by cancer. We are the Leukemia and Lymphoma Society. We are leaders in advancing breakthroughs in immunotherapy, genomics, and personalized medicine. This research saves lives. After 65 years of fighting blood cancers, we've arrived at a game-changing belief. The cures for cancer are in our blood. The drugs and treatments we've developed for blood cancers have helped people affected by many different types of cancers. We are the Leukemia and Lymphoma Society. Beating cancer is in our blood. Learn more at LLS.org. Song again. Here's that song again. For the hundred.